life in peace in part. That seems to be a strange bedfellow these days, doesn't it? Life in peace. I mean, is anxiety a stranger to anyone here? Don't we experience a lot of anxiety these days? No, I was beginning to wonder if, if perhaps, is it true, could it be said that that we today experience anxiety more than previous generations? I did a little homework, and pretty much unanimously it's agreed that yes, we do. So for instance, do we experience anxiety more than, say, those during the Great Depression era in the 1930s? Well, according to the research of a San Diego State University professor, the answer is a resounding yes, we do. Dr. Jean Twinge says this in her Generation Me, anxiety rates have risen steadily over the past seven decades. And here's her particular comment, as during good economic times and bad. Well, that was a surprise to me. I would have thought that anxiety was very much in correlation to economic times. Dr. Twins goes on and she sees at least some of the reasons in this deep cultural shift that we experience today with respect to anxiety. I'll quote from her here what her observations are, and these are just a few. She says, recent generations have been told over and over again, you and or your children can be anything that they, you, they want to be. You can have the big job, the title, you can have the big bank account. And in the case of women, you can have the perfect body. This puts a huge amount of pressure on people's shoulders. And it is also not true, nor is it true that we need to have all these things. But the disconnect creates a lot of anxiety about how hard you need to work. And by consequence, anxiety about failure. Another professor of psychology here at Yale has mentioned as well the same sort of phenomena. She specializes in stress and notes how, quote, our email and iPhones are constantly pinging, which keeps anxiety at a heightened level. People feel that they should always be on and that they should be called upon at any time and any moment to do something. You put that into the grid of our spirituality, and a theologian would describe that as a works righteousness culture. A culture that has accepted the burden of a secularly defined righteousness. And that's a mouthful. Righteousness may not be obedience to God's law defined. Righteousness is is anything which we consider to be a virtue in a secular age. Whether that's financial wealth, prestige, power, whatever it is. Righteousness can be redefined, and then works righteousness is that disposition that takes upon themselves the responsibility of those virtues, and on it goes. That's the irony, isn't it? It's not only a right to be anxious in today's secular kind of of, of world, We all would say, we hear it all the time, a kind of victim right. I have the right to be anxious because of this economic time, because of this political movement, because of this. I have the right to be anxious. But I would say it's even more than that. Whether it's the anxiety of a father or mother for a child, whether it's the anxiety of a child for a a sick or ailing parent, I think we've actually thought of anxiety as a virtue as a kind of trademark of love and compassion. Well, why am I saying all this? Anxiety, and especially, and perhaps some ways uniquely now, is, well, it's no stranger to us. But then again, we have all discerned the truism, haven't we? Worry is like a good rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it does not get us anywhere. It's true. What does all this anxiety gain? What does it accomplish? But more importantly, in our passage, Paul not only addresses the issue of anxiety but, and worry, but he actually has the audaciousness to command us, to command us to not be anxious 
anything. Anything? He states it positively. In fact, it's the very command that drives this whole passage. Rejoice. That is, be joyful in the Lord. Always. And again, I say, rejoice. Always? Doesn't this beg the question? I mean, is this a legitimate command? Really? Is rejoicing something we can just make happen? Is this a command that even makes sense? Well, do I have your attention? I'm thinking I do. And so we need to go to the Lord in prayer. And then let's turn to this passage. Father, we confess that we are an anxious people. And if the research is true, more so than every generation past, even through seasons that make our seasons sometimes look tame in comparison to the harsh realities and the fears that some previous generations experienced. And Lord, we confess that we're not sure if we're ashamed of our anxiety. Lord, isn't it what it means to love, to worry for someone? We're confused, Lord. Help us in our confusion. We pray for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, let me just start with this emphatic command. Verse 4 and then again verse 6. Again, our passage is defined by the, this command, Rejoice in the Lord. Always, I say, rejoice. And it's, notice carefully then, it's an emphatic, non-equivocal command. Enough said. And it's stated not once, but twice. Enough said. And notice even that Paul repeats the command as pertaining to the present and the future. Again, I will say rejoice. I mean, what does Paul know about the future circumstances such as to know that we could rejoice in them? I mean, obviously not, which already begins till the end of this passage, until kind of a joy that is not circumstantial, perhaps. Let's move on. For as if this is not enough, the command to rejoice two times is immediately followed by the same command restated negatively. Do not be anxious about anything. What are we going to do with that? Oh, but that's not all. And then there's this added always and anything. Rejoice the Lord always. Always be anxious for not, not about anything. Anything? I mean, isn't there something that escapes the purview of this command? Don't I have a right to be anxious about some things? I mean, can I be anxious about doing good in school? since so many have invested so heavily in my being in school? Can I be anxious about losing my job? So many depend on my income to flourish. It's all about sending my kids to school. What's wrong with that? Giving them a healthy place to live and food? I'm going, come on, Lord. I have a right to be anxious about that. It's in love. All things in love, right? Isn't it the right of a parent to worry about their children? I mean, isn't that even a sign of love? And can I be anxious about the economy, the political turmoil, wars, and especially the safety of those who go out and fight our wars, albeit the police who watch our streets at night, or the soldier who defends us against evil? I mean, come on, Lord. That's righteous anxiousness, isn't it? Paul says, and in no uncertain terms, no. Not if what we mean is that anxiety 
is in some instance considered a virtue. Or that there are some instances which rejoicing, well, just to be honest, circumstantially, is just not applicable. Okay. (laughs) Don't know for sure what Paul's aim is here, do you? But to be sure, he's got us anxious about being anxious. And I can already feel it in myself. How cruel. How harsh. Pastor, come on. Certainly there's something to this. Certainly there should not be such callousness as this. So what do we make of it here? I am sensing in myself and perhaps you a spiritual mutiny brewing. And to be sure, Paul could not have stated the command to have a greater impact. And it seems, too, that Paul knew it. I mean, with the repeating command to rejoice two times, stated for both all and every present and future circumstance, and then again restated in the negative, I mean, it is as though the apostle anticipated some objection. And if by context of the Philippian church, as it embedded in our passage, we could discern, indeed, two possible objections that fit neatly and nicely into the very content of this passage. We can discern at least two possible anticipated objections, and they go, both, they go along the way of this. Objection one. It gets to the circumstances of joy and anxiety. As if both are something that are determined by our outward context, less an inward frame of mind. I mean, isn't joy or the absence of anxiety a circumstantial thing as related to what's happening in my life? But the second objection goes deeper. It gets to the, to the very nature of joy or anxiety. As if both are something that we can just turn on and off, Paul? I mean, perhaps then an objection related to the psychology of joy, if you will? Is this something that you can really command? It's not like a water faucet, Paul. I don't just go, okay, no more hot water. I wish. So either this is a really bad mistake or Paul's in a really bad or self-righteous mood, or there's something else to be heard. So let's review it real briefly. Again, your outline very briefly, objection one and objection two. That's the content of the sermon. Again, the first objection gets to the circumstances of joy, as if both are something that are determined, that joy and anxiety are determined, necessarily even by the outward context less an inward frame of mind. It gets to this rejoice always, be anxious for nothing. But what about genuine suffering, poverty, oppression, injustice? Well, keep in mind the Philippians understood all of that. They were experiencing it themselves, and they were grieving and anxious even for Paul, who was unjustly imprisoned. Remember, their context and the problems they faced were grave. The threat posed by their opponents is covered in chapters 1 and chapter 3. It was real, and their concern for the apostle in prison, it was real. They didn't know, was he going to survive or not? Paul had to reassure them that he thought he would. There was a real contemplation. And this very life was real, all of it. The trauma that was created by selfishness, which was in the church, and a church that Paul very much had right to worry about, you would say. Because it seemed to be just splitting at the seams along class and political lines. Isn't that cause for worry? Isn't worry and joy, on the the converse, a circumstantial thing? Well, notice how he responds here. Notice, for instance, what he says there in verse 7. And the peace of God. That tells you a little bit about what joy is, by the way. But the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Luperpanta in the Greek. It's a strong, just exceeds. Is 
almost like saying, has nothing to do with all this outward stuff. It's that peace that he says will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This language is exactly the same as that you find in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 20. It goes like this. God can do beyond all things. Huperpanta. Beyond all things that we could ever ask or think. Now, there's two possible ways to understand Paul in verse 7, or in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. One, and this is how I almost always hear people quote it, if they quote it at all. One is that God could change any circumstance to be joyful. I mean, if you really believe in God, he can do all things beyond what we could possibly comprehend, and he could take whatever there is circumstantially and change it for the good. So that results in a petition to change the circumstance, right? If I'm worried about my poverty, I'm praying for God to make me rich in hyperbole form. Well, that's one way to look at it. And you could even, I could start giving you an argument why, well, of course, it's right to pray for for God's provisions, and there's a lot of things right about that. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Or is he saying, God is active in any and all circumstances, even as to accomplish his good plan as measured against God's work of salvation in our lives and in the world. Do you see the difference? Once focusing on God, who's powerful to change our circumstances. And off goes everything, in terms of how we pray, what we do, etc. The other is that God has the power to be active in any and all circumstances in a manner that can do good and fulfill his purpose in my or my loved one's life. Which is it? Well, let's go to the end and then we'll go back a little bit. Down there in verse 10, Paul makes it pretty clear where he's going. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revealed your concern for me. In other words, he's saying, look, don't, I'm not taken away from the fact that you have been concerned for me, and I'm rejoicing in that, that you are concerned for me. But, then he goes on to say, but not that I'm speaking of being in need. What? I mean, he already thanked them for all the things that they gave them, bread, and food, and books, and things like that. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. In other words, it's not the circumstances that this whole passage is informed by. And those are changing. For I have learned whatever situation I can be content. You hear what he's saying? This peace that surpasses all understanding was not by a God who changes the circumstances. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to be brought to abound. In any and every circumstance. I mean, how much more clear could it be? In any and every circumstances. Anything? Remember, the rejoice always. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can rejoice in all things through him who strengthens me. I cannot be anxious in all things through him who strengthens me. Now, again, he's not discounting the circumstances. What's in, he's a realist here. He doesn't say, oh, let's just pretend it's all good. No, he's, he, I don't think he thinks poverty is good in the sense of it being a virtue. But he's saying that there is joy and peace available in poverty. Notice then again verse 8. There's this amazing passage. We're going to look at it twice today. But here it goes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, if there's any excellence... And by the way, if you know anything about Pauline uh, rhetoric and, and the way in which he writes, when he starts compounding things like this, these, these word compounds, you know, where, where he's really saying the same thing 
1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I mean, some of you get me for being repetitive. This is ridiculous. I mean, he's just going on and over again. If there's anything, you know, worthy of all of this, and they're really all the same thing, don't sit there and micro look at this. It's anything. Then let your mind dwell on those things. What's he saying? On the service, we might be tempted, and I've heard this happen many times in places and little devotions. On the first, it might be tempted to see this as, well, you know, Gilmore, what's that happy, happy Gilmore? You know, go to a happy place. You know, positive thinking. I mean, is that what he's saying? Look, when you're feeling anxious, just go to a happy place in your mind. There's some smirking going on out there because I know you do that. I do too. When I can't sleep at night, I just start thinking about projects I want to do up in Adirondacks, and I go to bed like that. That's what I do. What do you think about? You know, I just love building things. I just love it, you know, and I get there, and I just start thinking about how it would be so fun to build a blank. You know, I'm actually attracted to this flip-it craze that's going on in HTTV. I don't know. It just, I love that stuff. It just, I just, I crave it. I just, oh, I just love building things. And that's my happy place. That is exactly not what Paul is saying here. This isn't just a nice, positive thinking exercise that we could utilize uh, in order. Well, actually, it kind of is, but not in that way. I just thought of that. No, he's talking about a state of mind. Not that just thinks about different circumstances. See, we've got to keep that track. This isn't just about, oh, let's just think of circumstances and a wishful thinking and go, oh, it's so happy. No. This is thinking about the real circumstances. Sticking to reality, but in a state of mind that values them differently. That values them differently. Where the idea is not so much that the knowledge of Jesus transcends our understanding, but the values, the worldview, the purposes, the promises of Jesus is by means of a decreed circumstance of God's providence are of surpassing value compared to the values that are associated with these circumstances and their immediate effect upon humanity in our lives. That's, that's, that's a hose and mouth statement. You see, it's, it's the hope that Paul describes, a certain and real hope. It's the hope that, man, I hope you go home and read that Proverbs 3 passage. Proverbs are great, by the way. I haven't said that maybe in a month or two, and I need to say it at least every week. You should read Proverbs over and over and over and over and over again if you want to be wise. And what Paul is saying here, it's pretty clear, it seems to me he might even be referencing this proverb, this understanding, note, note the quote. That, that true wisdom, true wisdom is to see things the way they really are, not fake are. But to the Christian, what, what really is, is there's a God. And if there is a God, he decrees all things. And if he decrees all things, he decrees them not for evil, but for good. That's reality. Oh, it's not a secular reality. A reality of a world without God. A reality where there is no window into heaven. And there's a kind of spiritual glass ceiling. That's not that reality. No, this is a world, an open system universe, we call it philosophically. A world where there is God present in, with, through, every circumstance. Let that sink in. And what he's saying is if you're wise, a wise person knows truth. A wise person knows reality. And the reality is there is a God. And if it's God, God is sovereign. And if it's God, God is good. Sovereignty, goodness, That's the magic potent. 
that then begins to transform. Not my outward circumstances. Not necessarily. But my inward condition. And so here are the kind of things that Paul says. Earlier in chapter 3, indeed, I count everything. Everything. Prestige, power, privilege. That he, those are the three Ps that pretty much survey what he just said. He, he gives up, if necessary, to follow. He's, he, none of those circumstances are, are worthy to be compared to this prize that, he's, that, he's, that he understands is, his, is by, by right of new birth in Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so for his sake, I've suffered the loss of everything. There's that doggone comprehensive word again. Everything. Anything. And count them as, comparatively speaking, rubbish. If those circumstances are the circumstances for me to gain Christ. This gets back to something we talked about earlier in Philippians, this holy obsession of Paul's to recognize that in life, in Christ, there is life abundant. Remember what Christ said, thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life more abundant. That's wisdom. That's truth. That's reality. And so this holy obsession, oh, if, if this circumstance will draw me near to the Lord, bring it on. If this circumstance will in some way discipline me and and, and enable me to to be sanctified, bring it on. Why? Sanctification is flourishing. You do understand that, right? I know the secular world has a very different take on sanctification. It's a killjoy. I can't tell you how many people I talk to, and that's, even people who've grown up in the church, and I say, well, what prevents you from coming to Christ? You know, giving yourself to Christ, professing faith. God, I just, I'm not ready not to have any fun. <laughs> Maybe that'd be later on. Let's wait till I can't have any fun anymore. You know, I'm old crippled and about to die, and then I'll start thinking about insurance policies. But now, man, I've got some things to do. I want to do them. So let's just put this thing off a little bit, at least after college. Come on, that's, that's a rite of passage, right? I get to go to college and kind of be a free spirit. Oh, have we misinformed our poor youth if that's what they think? Because, see, what we believe is that sanctification is ridding us of the curse of sin. We believe that sins, small s, are merely the consequence of sin, capital S, rejecting God, and that it always leads to death. And so Paul has this, yeah, strange, according to the secular mind, where there is no God, where we live in a world that's homeless without a divine presence. Oh, sure, that sounds pretty audacious. The circumstances is where it's all at, man. Let's change the circumstances. Let's put on this virtuous, works righteousness, secular style and and start beating ourselves up and working ourselves to a tizzy and going to bed at night and worrying ourselves all night because, man, if I don't have more money or if I don't have more prestige or if I don't have more power, I mean, it's, it's going to be life bad. Really? It kind of defies historical research. It certainly defies my experience in Haiti. I don't know. We know what's going on here according to the secular mind that we've been so gullible to listening to. Wisdom, according to Proverbs, is to understand that, that these circumstances that are harsh are, could be compared to a father who loves a child and who disciplines that child, that they might be rid of those things that would cause great harm and curse in their life and bring them death. A child, you would say, that has no discipline in their life is a cursed child. It explicitly says that, using the metaphor of the rod. Well, so too, a, a child of God that has no discipline. Well, discipline's kind of a harsh word to this day and age, I think. What's another word? Maybe training? Maybe exercising? Something like that? It is, it is also a, 
a kind of an athletic term in the Greek, in Hebrews chapter 12. And so, you know, you want to be wise? Understand what Paul is saying here. I mean, listen to Hebrews 12. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And so for the moment of discipline seems painful. Bad circumstances. Economic. Political. Whatever it is. Rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit. The peaceful, there's that word again, joyful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained up by it. There's no doubt that trials is the source of our anxiety in a secular worldview. I'm going to get to sorrow in a minute. We're going to distinguish anxiety and sorrow. I just need to say that right now, because right now you might be turning me off. So let me just say, we're going to distinguish anxiety from sorrow. Let's make sure we do that in a minute. If I don't do it, make sure you get me a thing. It's in there, but hopefully I'll get to it. I want to listen to some more Proverbs for a minute, just bathe you a little bit. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. I mean, what if, Romans 9 What if, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, he endured such patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And then he goes on to talk about those who who receive God's grace. He did so, it says in Romans 23, listen to this, those who even wrath, he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Always, anything, Everything? Yes, even the peace that is related to rejoicing that defies circumstances. Oh, but you say, I still have a few questions. Okay? I mean, should we then rejoice in the circumstances themselves? Isn't there a time to grieve and to mourn the harsh and bitter realities of life? Or even mourn the pain that comes with things that we fear will happen? Got to it quicker than you thought, didn't I? Yeah. It is all right. I mean, at the heart of the New Testament concept is this. A person can have biblical joy even when they are mourning. The two are not incompatible at all. Suffering or undergoing difficult circumstances... This is because the person's mourning is directed to one's, toward one concern, the, the sad reality that the world is cursed, that I am cursed, that I am unsanctified, that I need to be trained. We're not in heaven yet. I mourn that, okay? I mourn that. I mourn that this life is not heaven, that this world still has work to be done, that salvific, wherein heaven salvation is done, done, over. We're all saved. Yeah, I mourn it. I even struggle with impatience, as they did evidently in the congregation that Peter was writing to. When he says, yeah, don't, don't, don't be quite so impatient, though. You're, you're saved. But there are others that are not. And so there's still some work to be done, saving to be done. And yes, how's that going to be done? Yep, go back to those providential circumstances. Those ways in which God draws people to himself so that they can be discerned. They can discern the curse of life and the curse that is within them. You know, I had a beautiful time with my son yesterday up in Boston. Uh, he gets in the Northeast about twice a year, and he was there visiting his wife. And I know that sounds, I shouldn't have said that because they're all probably going, what the heck's going on with that? No, they're not separated. Nothing's a problem. But, uh, but we were reflecting, just, it was just good. You know, it was a good day. You know, it was a, it, I, I see an amazing man being formed, and, and I was encouraged by that. And, uh, and he was sharing some of the things that he's learned recently, and, and we were talking a little bit about his past and some of the suffering that he had when he was in high school, and I won't go into the details of that, but, um, and we, we were thinking together just how those circumstances were the very context that, that taught him, that got rid of him of some things, that, that allowed him to, to learn how to, to to be the person he is and uh, prepare him for the world that he lives in. 
And, uh, you know, we, we can see the wisdom, hindsight sometimes. And I say sometimes because I think there'll be quite a few questions I still have when I get to heaven, okay? But just there's enough hope in those, if you've seen that yourself, where you've looked at your life and you go, wow. You know, for me, I, I know there are a couple of circumstances in my life, in my past, I'm sure there are in yours, where I look back now and I can say, you know, I, I really wouldn't be the person I am today. If, if there's, and, and I don't mean that by a boastful sense. I mean in the sense that I'm flourishing in some way. Except that those things happened. Well, so we've got a little bit of a metaphor of what the wisdom of God is here in this passage. But that's what he's talking about. You see, Christian joy is not then superficial or flimsy. But what we do see in Scripture is that Christian joy is deep and firm. And it's not superficial and flimsy or circumstantial. The reason we know this is the Bible describes Christian joy as flourishing right in the midst of pain and suffering all the time. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Thessalonians, you receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Really? Both and? You bet. 2 Corinthians 8, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. In a severe, not a mild, a severe affliction, they overwhelmed with an abundance of joy. And their extreme, I'm quoting again, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality. Oh, wow. It's like the, the quote from Boehm. The Holy Spirit leads us by anxiety to new birth. And that leads me to my second objection. Objection number two. Okay. All right. At least biblically, you've shown me some evidence here that, that there is a kind of joy that is not external determined. But what about the nature of joy and anxiety itself? This gets to this question of, is it something I can just turn on and off? How would I get it then? How can I stop being anxious? Is the command to rejoice or be joyful, the command to not be anxious or to have peace, something we can just make happen? Mm, Maybe, but not quite so simplistically as turning a knob. You see, Paul, we could say, well, you know, Paul here is just prone to hyperbole. I mean, you know the type. Don't take him literally, just take him seriously. Ha, that's a joke. It's actually a cute little phrase. But no, listen to the scripture, Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Hmm? Rejoice always, we heard. Rejoice even as you share Christ's sufferings, we heard, 1 Peter 4. Rejoice in hope, rejoice in hope. Persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, Romans 12. There's a a theme that we've heard in other scriptures that Paul's going to return to here. Do you hear it? It's this this description of of, uh, hope, but not hope that's kind of just future, but hope that says, despite what I can see and feel, there is another reality to this. And how do we gain access to that? It's interesting that prayer starts coming up a lot, as it does here. Is it, it's, is it true that joy here, while commanded, is not presented as a sheer act of the will? That it's something that must be gifted? That we must ask for? Notice again verse 5. But in everything, be prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, listen to this carefully. Look at verse 7. Again, we've talked about this idea, this hyper, you know, this idea of hyperponta that surpasses all understanding. Not only as applied to, uh, not only is not applied to circumstances, as we're going to change the circumstances, but related more to the fact that there can be an origin of joy and peace or the absence of anxiety 
that's not externally, but it's inwardly gifted. And notice then this key phrase here, the peace of God. You know, we read the Bible. Those of us who read the Bible a lot often miss this, honestly, because it becomes cliche. It becomes something we just so used to. We always, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, of God, of God, of God. It just looks like a nice little tag on that makes it spiritual. Kind of like, you know, Jesus' name I pray, Amen. I mean, we're stopped and thought about that verse, that little statement, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, name, his honor is at stake here. His power, his love, his history on earth, his atonement. In Jesus' name. Well, what does it mean when Paul says here, in the Lord? when he talks about righteous rejoicing, and of God when he talks about peace. You see, the event of joy and peace is not external, but internal. Paul's directing it, he says, to the heart and the mind. That's very significant. Slow down when you're reading. And the source of joy and peace is not internal, though, but external, but not circumstantial external, God external. Christ Jesus external, even if in the mystery of our sacramental union with Christ, he makes it internal. Now, that is a book I want to write, but not now. But let me read it again. The source of joy and peace is not internal, but external. God, Christ, Jesus, not us. Even if the mystery of our sacramental union with Christ makes it internal. Christian joy, then, is not an act of willpower, but a spontaneous response of the heart and mind to God, His presence, His power, His being, that we partake of through the very means of grace that God has given us in the hands of the Holy Spirit to partake of it. To be commanded to be rejoiceful, to be commanded to not be anxious, It would be like saying, well, like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Certainly I can command you to be loving. Certainly I command you to be joyful, to have peace. But this love, this peace, this joy, there is a context where this is given to me as a gift of God. See, if you think it's a gift, then, then you ask the question, well, how do I get it? And how do I receive it? Well, the the Scripture will say in so many words, never using these words, by the ordinary means of grace. I.e., through the ministry of word, sacrament, the communion of the saints, and prayer. The Holy Spirit takes these as instruments in His divine hand, and He imparts into us this mystery of internal peace and joy. Because He revamps our mind. He gives us wisdom. A wisdom that is sourced from a universe that's open to the presence of God versus a closed system universe, secular. And so the Christian joy is not natural. It's spiritual. It's not natural. It's supernatural. But we could command, be commanded to, to, get, to, to do it as we access, access the means of grace through which it will come. But I think a lot of it comes with a new and renewed mind, coupled with a will to desire it. The fruit of the Spirit. Thessalonians says the Christians receive the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. I didn't read that first part, did I, the first time? They received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 7. And Jesus on several occasions said that he wanted to have his joy fulfilled in the disciples in John 15 and John 17. Go read John 17. Peace I give them. What is he talking about? This, he's all about communion, union, sacramental union with Christ, the, the Son who's in union with the Holy Trinity. It's just an amazing union spirituality that we need to take more time to reflect upon and do. Being with Christ is what, where this is going. 
that, that little quiet time that we, we force in the morning, if you're being a good little dutiful Christian, it, it's going to transform it when we start thinking about how my life and my vitality and everything in my life depends on, on being in union with Christ. Partaking of his divine nature. And how that would transform our lives if we believe that. And so, yes, Paul says, for in whatever circumstances I've learned, I can be content. Because contentment is predicated not upon his circumstances, but his being, his being in Christ. You could say Paul is self-sufficient. In fact, the word here that's used is a classic word in the Greek for stoicism. You could say he's self-sufficient, and he is measured in secular terms or, or in terms that would, would uh, in terms of how he lives his life. He's self-sufficient. He's not, he's not determined or, or dependent upon everything and everybody, right? But he's self-sufficient, there it is again, in Christ Jesus, according to Paul, of God, according to Paul. And so the result is Paul comes out with this audacious statement. He ends it. Our passage ends, 13. I can do all things. Oh, there's that hyperbole again. Take him seriously, but not literally. Not. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who, who strengthens him? I mean, this, this has been really cool for me to have this week. Thank you for letting me study this for you. It's just been unbelievable to me to look at this and go, wow. I memorized this, I think, maybe the first week I was a Christian, you know. Just, this is one of those passages I memorized. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not until this week that I'm figuring this out. Well, I don't think I figured it out, but I'm at least getting closer. Not until this week. I'm so grateful that you made me preach. And then this prayer Notice now in a new way how we reinterpret his call to prayer. Do not be anxious about anything. E.g., let nothing worry you. And everything be. E.g., tell God everything. Everything that you need or everything that you experience, anxiety, tell him. But then it's not going to, don't take these, there's four words, four different words that are used to describe this prayer life. And don't think of this as some kind of a neat formula, you know, and I won't go through the Greek words, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, request. It's really better to see these words again as Paul saying, a full-orbed prayer. (laughs) But a full-orbed prayer, informed by the very faith of of the gospel, is a prayer that will have thanksgiving even in, with, and through the afflictions. Because you see, what you're thinking is you're going to God with your anxiety. And I can think of some prayers that I've had, and I won't bore you because this sermon's not about me, but I can think of some prayers that I've had where it, it, it actually fit this description by God's grace. Where I start off with, oh man, I'm so worried. I'm scared for blank and blank and blank. But by the time I've saturated myself with the Word of God, I begin to find that those blanks are getting transformed in meaning and value. To where by the end of the prayer, I'm able to say in good faith that even worst case scenario could be an amazing blessing of God in the world or in this person. And I believe with all of my heart that you can say that, if you're wise, according to the Proverbs. Somehow, even in the mystery of it all, even evil itself. Now, you're going to have to work at it. (laughs) And and I mean, by go to Scripture and really study and pray. But it goes back to this. Do you believe there's a God? Is he sovereign? Is he good? Case settled we can rejoice. We can have peace. Well, what we have discovered is that while rejoicing is not natural or a direct will of the, act of the will, it is something rightly commanded of each one of us. Such joy is a response of a new value system informed by being in the Lord 
All external circumstances, a source of our anxieties, take on new meaning and value. We learn that joy can be contiguous with distress and even mourning. This is accomplished not by an exercise of positive thinking, but by a new state of mind and affections as a result of participating in the means of God's grace. Worship, prayer, sacraments, word, sacrament. But I just said that, didn't I? It's, it's that, that command that we have before us today. And very, at the very least, I think we can now rightly and honestly and without condemnation agree that we probably all sin of anxiety. We need the absolution of the table. But as we come to this table, I mean, if you're not convicted, I don't know what would convict you, that you need this table and everything it points us to in the absolution of Christ for us. But as we come, we come not now claiming our, our anxiety as a right. We are no longer a victim. And we don't come to this table claiming that anxiety is a virtue, as a, a perverted sense of love. We come to the table as real sinners who sadly have distanced ourselves from the very being and presence of Christ, the original sin itself that's within each one of us. People who, in doing that, have begun to recraft reality after a world without windows, a world without God's presence. And we've become so used to it, we even give each other concessions to it. It's just human, you know. No, it's just secular to be anxious. But it's sinful. Like all of our other sins, God is gracious and loving. And so don't minimize the sin of anxiety in order to feel better. Rather, see that your anxiety was placed on the cross. I remember the Lord, do you not, when he was tempted with anxiety before he died? As he prayed even to God, if it be your will, take this from me. And yet, he took our anxiety. He, he brought it with him to that cross. And God killed it. And the power of the gospel killed it perfectly. For he was vindicated in his righteousness. A man killed for our anxiety, not his own, and raised from the dead on the third day, wherein we know that God in Christ satisfied all this anxiety curse. And so I invite you to come and feel the experience of forgiveness if you're feeling as I am, convicted. And then with a renewed hope that life can be different. You can rise with Christ in a new life. That's the gospel. If you're not a believer, that's the gospel. That we don't avoid our problems. We look them straight in the eye and we put them on the shoulders of Christ, who is our God. Let us pray.